The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Tarek Ruff to today's podcast. Tarek is the founder and CEO at Catalog, who provide a digital work hub for team collaboration. Uh, they're a Salesforce Ventures company, a Gartner 2021 call vendor, and they recently hit number one on Product Hunt. So uh, Tarek, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you for having me. So Tarek, you have this unique blend of being a trained architect and also a software geek. I believe that software and coding were your, your passions as a child. So I'd love to hear more about your journey through those two very different worlds. No, for sure. Um, I started coding as a, as a kid. I thought my first trip with programming started when I was six. And uh, I got pretty obsessed with it very quickly. My dad used to sell computers on the side. Um, he was a salesman. And that was my um, entry into the world of computers. And so I started getting into it because there were always computers at home and uh, they'd change every now and then. And it'd just be so fascinating to play with and assemble and disassemble. But I very quickly moved from hardware to software. I was more fascinated with the actual pieces of um, code that were running all these very, very interesting things in these machines. And I was hell-bent on learning, and I started picking up all kinds of languages. I started with BASIC, then moved to Visual BASIC, and then C++, and then Java. And uh, I was able to build things, and it gave me a lot of satisfaction in seeing something that was just an idea fruition into, uh, into an interface. I started writing software more seriously as I got older. So I built my first software business when I was 12. I don't know if the audience uh, remembers Microsoft Access, but that was my first twist into essentially building software that you could sell. And I used to build uh, warehousing software and timekeeping software and all these kinds of software within Microsoft Access, which I think is the OG low no-code tool. Unfortunately, it's no longer in existence, I think, but that enabled me to build solutions and sell to businesses. I kept doing that for a number of, number of years and uh, the types of software that I would build would become more complex. So I started building large-scale booking systems and ticket management systems and computational fluid dynamic software bespoke for clients around the world. Um, and uh, my interest was quite, a, like, I really enjoyed the interface designing aspects of it. So I spent a lot of time learning design and the history of design and the tooling and the practices around it, and I was I gravitated towards the basics taught by um, the more established designers at the time. Most of them were essentially interior designers and architects, like the likes of uh, Mise van der Rohe and Le Corbusier, who taught about the principles of design. Even Dieter Rams was a the guy who was inspired Apple was an industrial designer. So I gravitated towards that group of people and I started getting interested in the world of architecture. But the, the foundational principles are the same. It is you envision something and then you break it apart into pieces and you execute and you bring it to life. Something that was just conceptual in your head becomes a real thing eventually. 
And the only difference between software and hardware and uh, actual buildings is the permanence of buildings versus the ephemerality of, of software. You make software and it's outdated in three months. You make a building, it stands there for, if done well, a century and more. So that permanence of, of, of buildings and, and the very, very creative process that you have to go through to make it happen while also solving a lot of extremely hard logistics and uh, space challenges was, was very appealing to me. So I, I studied architecture because studying computer science felt like a waste of time. I was like, what am I going to learn? But in order to practice architecture, you need a degree. You cannot, you need a certification, you need licenses. And so I went down the actual path of getting one and uh, spent five years learning it and then went on to train under one of the uh, renowned architects called Charles Correa. And he was a small, he, he ran a small studio. He was a professor at MIT. And he, had, he ran a very small studio that did very big buildings. And he did that using software and he, used, he did that using um, delegation of the hard bits to various firms around the world. And he was essentially building, at the time I was in his office, there were $900 million worth of buildings being constructed and there were six people in his studio. So did you work on any landmark projects uh, when you were an architect? A few. So one is um, the Champalimau Center in Lisbon for the city of Lisbon. It's a $380 million cancer research center, which has now become a tourism site because of just how spectacular the building is for the city. And you can see it as you land into Lisbon. There's another one for the Aga Khan in Toronto called the Smiley Center, which is a big community cultural center. I think that was a $400 million building. Then there's a Mahindra Research Valley in Chennai which is another massive research center. It was a research city, really. It was a master plan plus a bunch of research facilities that we built for this massive company in India called Mahindra and a couple of other small projects here and there. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. And how have you combined those two perspectives, the software geek and the architect, a catalog? A catalog is essentially a coming together of, of both of my passing, passions, really. Because one is architecture teaches you to be sensitive to the needs of the people. And it's not just needs of an individual, but it makes you, it, it sort of um, trains you to be sensitive to how many people are dealing with the specific problem that you're solving for. So designing a, an airport for 10 million passengers per annum is very different to designing an airport for 50 million passengers per annum. The number of terminals that you need, the number of gates, the number of toilets, the number of seats, all of that means to go up exponentially as more and more people get into a specific space. The relationship isn't linear, it's exponential. So as you add more and more people, you can't just expand linearly. You need to sort of restructure how flows happen. So a lot of the way in which you design a building is set in stone depending on how many people are using it. And in software, there's a lot of uh, training for abstraction. Like abstraction, you need to abstract the problem, understand its pieces, build those pieces, and then assemble it together. And if you think about how this has come together in, in catalog is, is we're bringing that thinking of building for scale with scale in mind for interfaces specifically is not something that's been done in software up until now. Like if you think about Slack, it was Slack was built for a team of 10 by a team of 10. And now you have 10,000 people organizations using Slack, but the interface hasn't really changed so much. So you can start to see the side effects of there's too many notifications, there's too many red badges on screen. 
is because the, the, the software wasn't designed for that scale. And the same, if you take any of the other pieces of work software, which is, let's say, Asana, for instance, right? And it's a task management tool, and it's a really, really good task management tool until you put 2,500 people in it. And then very quickly gets very overwhelming and unscalable. So what teams do is they end up creating different instances of Asana which where you can't see things from across. Like the design team would have their own Asana, the product team would have their own Asana. And if you need to link things within them, you cannot because they're treated as two separate installations. And so this lack of thinking of scale hasn't is sort of uh, structural to how companies in, in the world of work are built. They usually start off as an innovation for a small team. It's like, hey, this is something that we can do, which is better than email. But that quickly gains momentum and the internet has enabled widespread adoption very quickly. But that doesn't give the teams the time or the resources to be able to take a step back and say, hey, we didn't think about these things, but it's too late, just like a building. You cannot retrofit you know, another runway at an airport or another terminal at an airport without fundamentally restructuring a lot of things. Um, and so the way we've approached this problem in catalog is to say, how many people, we start with just like a building, how many people are going to be in here? And how does that affect the way we build this piece of software? Which means the way in which we do notifications, the way in which the data is structured, the way in which uh, people access and retrieve things need to be thoughtfully designed to make that as efficient as possible. If you think about the only filing systems that we've had in the world of work, and this is it's amazing to say this is true in 2022, is, is folders. We use folders, even now, it started back in the 80s and 70s, even now we use folders, even inside of SaaS apps. Like if you go to a Dropbox instance inside of a company, you'll find folders as the way to organize things. And each team has its own way of thinking about how to build a structure for itself. And so somebody who's new to a team won't be able to find what they need because they don't know what the structure is in somebody's head. So what Catalog does is everything is structured by the way in which the organization is structured. So if you're a part of the design team and you're looking for a bunch of resources on the design team, you go to the design team and you can see their resources. Or there is a project within the design team called the design system. Then you can go to that project within the design team and look at the design system and then get the resources that you need. So it sort of follows the sort of natural way in which people think. So the ergonomics of the software is designed for people and for teams and for teams of scale. Does Catalog have the ability to cope with even rapidly evolving, fast scaling companies? Can, is, is that functionality built in? It's designed exactly for that because fast scaling companies is where it's very hard to enforce structure because people are just going out there and doing things and executing things super fast. So there's no way to sort of hold people back and say, hey, don't do this this way, don't do this that way. Because of the inherent structure and ergonomics of the software, there's only one way to do it. And that is the natural way in which you, you organize information. And so it automatically scales as fast-growing teams use it more and more. Now, before Catalog, you spent some five years or so leading product functions at Wise and Amazon. What lessons did you learn from your time at, at those two companies? And how have you applied those lessons in the way you're scaling Catalog? I think... Each organization is very different. They all have their own little quirks and they all have their own little ways of solving problems that they teach its people. And I was fortunate in, in landing in two very distinct organizations that taught me two very distinct set of skills. So TransferWise was a, why is now, 
was a fast scaling company with a product that tons of customers really loved. That was fast growing in the truest sense of the word, in the sense everything was exploding everywhere. Um, the team, people, I remember when I joined, we used to have maybe two, three new joiners a week. By the time I left, we had 50 to 60 new joiners a week. And uh, it was it was scaling pretty fast. And so the types of challenges, again, when you run a startup, if you haven't seen what good looks like, it can be very, very difficult to take your company there, which is one of the reasons why uh, former scale-up company employees tend to do better at building new startups because they sort of can foresee that and know what type of turbulence you can expect during that journey. Like things things break um, constantly and it's okay. So to be inside a machine that was executing that fast and scaling that fast, you sort of understand what's good, what's bad, what's okay, what's not okay. That taught me a sense of um, tolerance for what is okay in a company and what's not. Amazon was a completely different set of experiences in the sense that it was a lot more structured as a company. As you, they've got 660,000 corporate employees now, and uh, it's, they have to be structured and they have to be sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, process-driven in a way. But at the same time, they managed to figure out ways to not be crushed by that scale. So one of the things that they did was a lot of documentation. So any team anywhere invested a ton of effort into documentation so that when a project gets introduced to a team across the world, they're able to very quickly get up to speed as to what is this? Why are we doing this? What's the customer problem? Who's working on this? All those kinds of things. And uh, the way they approached solving problems in a very data-driven, structured, cohesive, long-term versus short-term, they had that full view of how something would mature into a proper business line from day one. It wasn't a shoot from the hip type of operation, which is one of the reasons why Amazon has succeeded in creating so many category creation efforts. Like Kindle is net new. There was nothing like the Kindle before the Kindle came along, but an e-commerce company was able to create that. AWS was net new and category creating, and there was nothing like AWS before. One day shipping is net new. Nobody had managed to actually do that at scale across the world. Well, not entirely across the world, but you know, a good chunk of the, the developed nations at least. And uh, there's lots of things, there's lots of little details in the DNA of the organization that's enabled that. It's not, and continues to do that. Alexa is net new in the sense that a whole device ecosystem full of voice-driven interfaces isn't something anybody would go ahead and create from nothing, but Amazon did that. So there's something that in the, in the organization that's structural, that's leading to these innovations and is continuing to lead to those innovations. And one of that is a clear customer point of view. As a customer, I want this to happen. Is that true or false? So if you go and test all of these creations, if you go ask that as a customer, I would like to read my entire library of books wherever I am without eye fatigue, which is the biggest pain point with reading on phones at the time. They're like, we're going to create a new digital ink technology that's going to feel like it's going to be, it's going to feel like you're reading on paper and you have your entire library of books within this one device. So they ended up putting a 3G connection in every Kindle device that existed and paid for it themselves. So these are the sorts of things that a startup cannot do, but Amazon could do because of its scale. But that deep focus for what is good for the customer 
And what we need to invent to make that better is sort of a DNA that's deeply uh, embedded into the company. So that's one. The second thing is um, there's, there's a difference between creating a plan and executing a plan and making sure that you have the processes and the checks and balances and the resources in, in sort of aligned to make that happen. So the rigor around that, the processes around that, and the discipline required to make things happen is definitely something that uh, was greatly helped by my experience at Amazon. There's been much debate due to the pandemic, really, about hybrid work versus work from home and work from office models. What do you feel we've learned about the effectiveness of those different models, at least as of March 2022? I think COVID marks the, the death of the nine to five, I think. There's no way, at least uh, um, it's it's at least the world of knowledge work, I think a lot of other industries are going to remain as is, but the world of knowledge work doesn't make any sense to go back to the nine to fives. Uh, one of the interesting things um, I've come to sort of discover through this process is we started interviewing people that have been like the COVID generation. They've been only in the workforce after COVID. So people with two, three years of experience who've only been, whose only experience of work is working from home. And uh, I, had, I had the chance of asking a few of these people, like, if we decide to go back to the office, like, uh, you know, would you be able to commute? And uh, it's like asking a teenager to go back to using SMS or uh, phone calls. It's just as impossible. They're like, you must be out of your mind to expect me to sit in a car for four to five minutes or a train or a bus for four to five minutes to go to an office and just do exactly what I was doing at home and then back again. So if, if, if nothing else, the generation that's coming now will ensure that the world doesn't go back to that. The previous generation might get away with a halfway house between hybrid and what all those sorts of things. But I think the generation that's, that's coming up now will ensure that that's the end of it. I have seen all the signs of that not returning to what it was before. The other is, uh, to go back to your question of what do we learn, it is, so even I had trouble with uh, distributor work, to be honest, in the beginning. As like, this is a startup, you need to sit next to each other, tap on each other's shoulder, quickly go whiteboard, figure out solutions and, and bring things together. But what I've realized since then is uh, most of the high quality work happens when you're alone, by yourself, when, you're, when you have silence, when you're listening to music, when you're drinking coffee. That's when you're processing all of the nodes of information that you've got your way, that's come your way, and then you've sort of pieced that together. But you need quite time. And even if you look at architecture, like I remember now, the open plan office space design was built for supervision. So you had armies of typewriters and armies of like calculators and accountants that would sit in a large floor. So you can, you know, supervisors can keep their eyes on them and make sure that they're doing their work. That's what the open plan office was created for. And even back in, uh, I think it was, 70, it was 1876 when the government of the UK, the, the UK government sanctioned a study on what type of, oh, these offices are new. This office thing is new. So they commissioned a study on uh, what type of offices should we build for our naval reserves and these armies and all those sorts of things that they needed offices for. And their recommendation was for any type of work that requires like output, 
in, in the form of tangible output every day, things like clockwork, things like typewriters, accountants, all these types of things, put an open plan office space. For things that reserve strategic thinking, things that require creative work, they actually recommended cabins. So if you look at the type of work that knowledge workers do today, it's very little coordination and it's a lot of creation. It's creating documents, it's creating strategies, it's writing stuff, it's, it's a lot of synthesis of information. And so quiet time is actually more effective for, for doing that type of work. And if you've ever worked in an open plan office, I'm sure the new generation that's coming out of COVID has never and will never. But if, you know, it's very noisy. It's very, it's full of visual noise, audio, like um, auditory noise. And it's not the most ideal setup for the type of work we were doing. So in effect, work from home enables that quiet time, assuming you have the resources to have a quiet space in your home. Uh, and, and you have the ability to, to reflect on work and to reflect on all the pieces of information that you need to uh, synthesize. And the meetings are really a distraction. And the fewer you have those, the better. And working from home sort of forces you to have fewer catch-ups because nobody wants to be on Zoom. And uh, I think it's a good forcing function. It was an accidental sort of discovery, collective discovery that we've stumbled into the best way of work at least for knowledge workers. I started working from home about 20 years ago, and it was quite tough at the beginning. I remember having several months, maybe even several quarters, when I found it quite unusual to be working from home instead of working from the office. But now I'm almost neurotic about it. <laughs> any any noise distraction of, at all, <laughs> a barking dog, et cetera, drives me completely nuts. So I've uh, I've taken it to an extreme of wanting almost to be in a soundproof box to do my creative thinking. That was how um, I think nature wanted it. So well done on doing it for 20 years. <laughs> now, uh, we also talked briefly when we last spoke about visibility and trust between teams and the productivity paradox. So I'd love to hear more about your views on the future of work, especially in this this post-pandemic world. It's interesting that some of the, the productivity paradox comes from the fact that productivity tools are killing productivity. So if you look at the amount of time people spend managing their uh, information and making sure it's been shared in the right places, the anxiety that comes from, did I put it in the right place? Have people seeing it? Is my work visible? So my work is not visible, so I'm going to go put it in seven different places. These are all things that the average uh, knowledge worker faces. And we did a bunch of research at Cornell University last year. We published a report on language.work in terms of how bad it genuinely is. And, uh, and and the data is pretty damning, right? And people spend an hour every day just looking for stuff. The reason why it doesn't get addressed as urgently is this is mainly a IC slash worker problem versus a management problem. It is bad management, but it is an order of magnitude worse in the IC and, uh, you know, worker level. So people who are producing the work and need the feedback and collaboration loops necessary to progress their work are the ones that feel it. And they've sort of accepted it as the norm. Like this is the way we conduct business. And uh, when you highlight it to them, it becomes like they almost become aware of it and go, yeah, you're right, this is crazy. (laughs) 
And, but there's there's no solution. There's there's no fix for it. So they go, well, what else can I do? And I think that's where companies, products like Catalog and the ones, and I'm sure there'll be lots more to, to come after us. We're the first ones to do it the way we're doing it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we're not the last ones. Is there's a shift happening in the type of things that tools for work need to take into account. So before it used to be that tools focused on what is the problem the customer has? Okay, we're going to go build for that. So if you think about Slack, they go, what is the problem the customer has? It's messaging, right? Let's go build a tool for messaging. And now you've got a great messaging tool, but they haven't really taken into consideration. Again, like I said, in the beginning of this podcast, like when 500 people use a tool for communication, how do you make sure that it doesn't become overwhelming? How do you make sure it doesn't become, like, you know, a lot of people that a lot of people that use Slack we speak to in companies that are 500 and above hate it uh, just because like, I don't know if I've kept up with everything. And there's this implicit expectation that you need to, like, am I missing out on something? So if you don't use it, you get anxiety. If you use it, you get anxiety. So, and that's just one messaging tool. Then you multiply this across task management, you multiply this across company alignment and documentation, all the sorts of things that starts to amplify. And people just sort of become numb to this thing of how do I get on top of this? There's no solution. So I think the next um, sort of paradigm in, in the future of work theme is building software a little bit more considerately. And there's five things, there's five pillars that I think need to be considered while doing so. One is it needs to be collaborative by default. It needs to be connected by default. By connected, I mean your messaging app needs to be able to tell where this project is without people pinging each other for it. Because half the messages in Slack are like, hey, where's this? Hey, where's that? Can you show me this? Can you show me that? Can we jump on a quick call to discuss the status of this project? So if we can take that away, then remote work becomes a lot more palatable because people are paying each other less for very trivial things. Before, it used to be a tap on the shoulder, which is a lot less annoying because, you know, it's, it's communicating with people in person is a lot less friction than a digital ping where you can get 15 at a time. The third is it needs to be intelligent. It needs to be able to make decisions for you. So, for example, if I've got 15 people slacking me at the same time, I shouldn't get 15 notifications. It needs to be able to say, hey, in the last hour, you've got 15, because nothing is as urgent as a Slack message. Like, it's impossible. It's not an emergency line. So tools and methodologies to reduce that burden on, on users is, is something that needs to be considered. And intelligent, not just from a notifications point of view, but let's say you're doing a task management app and you have 15 things you need to do today. And it needs to be able to say, hey, here are the three things that we think are important because six other people are connected to it. And here's the information that you can get based on the work that those six people are doing. And this is going back to the connected piece. If the software isn't connected, it can't make those decisions for you. Uh, fourth is it needs to be social. So if you think about remote work and the digital work, which is inevitably going to be how most of the world operates, at least the knowledge work, the social aspects of work are disappearing. You can no longer see that Gary is the one doing this work and Gary's presenting it, X, Y, and Z, which used to be fairly a passive thing that happened in, in the office, right? And in, in, a, in a co-located space. Now it needs to be intentionally built into the tools that we, that we sort of uh, use. And we need to be able to highlight 
a lot of the things using social aspects in the product. And the last is it needs to be delightful. And a lot of apps like Slack and Asana do, do this really well in making the experience truly like something that's joyful. It's nice to see, it's nice to look, it's nice to um, use, the, even the sounds that they put, some people might call it annoying, but there's, there's a lot of polish to the things that they've built. So we should, we should see more of that. And um, at the risk of flogging my own piece of software, the catalog was built with, what if, what if you could take all of these five considerations in building a foundational software for work that cuts across the organization, what would that look like? And uh, that's, that's how Catalog came into existence. And tell me about your vision for the future for Catalog. How do you see the business evolving, progressing over the next three to four years? So there isn't really a single hub for work at the moment. It's people, people have hacked together wikis and people have hacked together systems to make that work. There isn't a structural sort of digital hub where all of the things connected to work happens. And so we've succeeded in building the platform. We've succeeded in taking it to market. We've succeeded in getting 7,000 organizations to, 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 to sign up and use it. But I think it's just as the start. And in about two to three years from now, we will own that. We own the category today. We will scale that category up and we'll own the broader positioning of what's that one central place for work inevitably because we don't see anybody else getting there before us and we don't see anybody else where we are today. And uh, in three to four years from now, well, touch wood, if everything goes well, we would be the, the de facto point in which the first click, essentially, the first login at somebody at work and hopefully the last login for somebody at work because you don't need anything else. Brilliant. Well, that sounds like uh, a wonderful bit of category creation and leadership for Catalog. I wish you and the team huge success and maybe we'll do a follow-up pe- podcast in uh, March 2025 see if you're uh, on on uh, well on track <laughs> towards that uh, towards that goal thanks for joining me today Tarek thank you Gary thanks for having me this episode of the startup to scale up game plan was brought to you by Alpina search head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high impact senior talent 